Last week, I had intended to get all the way through chapter 21, but um, I, I left off on three verses uh, in conclusion of Jesus' parable of the landover, landowner and the vine dressers, and, uh, and I actually finished with verse 43 unintentionally. It's about the kingdom being given to a nation, bearing the fruit of it. Uh, I don't know, maybe that was God's intention, uh, but I don't want to not discuss the last three verses with you. So, um, what we know thus far in the chapter, uh, Jesus has shared two parables, and in those parables, he's demonstrated the pride, the unrighteousness, the unbelief of the religious leaders of Israel, as well as their rejection of Christ, and what the consequences for that will be. And uh, so, let's take one more look uh, for the sake of context, and then we'll get into all the way to verse 14. Uh, we'll, we'll try Matthew 22. So, if you would please stand uh, for the reading of God's word. I'm going to start in Matthew 21, verse 33. I'm going to go to verse 14 of 22. It's a lot of reading, so if you want to sit down as I read, hey, it's okay. All right? 21, verse 33. Jesus, speaking to the, these religious leaders, says, Here another parable. I got more for you. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his son to them, saying that they will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? That question is, is given to the religious leaders. And they said to Jesus, He will destroy those wicked men miserably, careful what you say, and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruit of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard, this, heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. Chapter 22, And Jesus answered and spoke to them again by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son <clears throat> and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted uh, cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Then he said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. So those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all who they found both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man 
there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. All right, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word. And, uh, well, your son meant business. And, um, Lord, we want to understand and we want you to use your word to develop conviction in us. Lord, to produce obedience, to make us like you. Lord, I pray that you would use your word for that. And, um, yeah, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, go and be seated. All right, well, let's go back to chapter 21, and we'll go to verse 44, which I did not get to. So Jesus says to the religious leaders, and whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now, Jesus is clearly referring to himself uh, as the chief cornerstone that he mentioned in verse 42. Remember the the chief cornerstone, the stone which the builders rejected. The builders, speaking of the religious leaders of Israel, they rejected Christ. So here, uh, he's adding some some commentary to it. So the question is, real quick, what is a cornerstone? It it literally means head of the corner. Now, D.A. Carson points out that this was probably the stone that was placed at the top of a parapet wall in the corner, or the external staircase of a building, or the at the top of the wall of a city. For example, uh, you've seen the ancient homes in Israel, they're flat on top. Uh, but in the law of Moses, uh, it was required that every roof of the flat top had to have a, a parapet, a short parapet wall built around the perimeter so that people just didn't fall off the roof. Uh, God didn't want his people to be guilty of bloodshed. So if, uh, if you hate building codes as much as I do, they're in the Bible, okay? Uh, <laughs> This doesn't mean that all building codes are intelligent. This happens to be uh, a good one. Uh, I probably shouldn't say intelligent. Um, Some of them are foolish. How's that? (laughs) So the top stone on the corner of the parapet, uh, it really is the chief cornerstone. Uh, It could be, as I said, on the top of the the edge of the staircase, on the outside of a house, or even on the city wall. Uh, Either either way, these particular stones were placed at an elevated position. They were, they were up high. And while the stone was designed to finish off the parapet wall for safety, it could be dangerous as well, okay, as the text indicates. You know, if someone was to fall on this stone, top-heavy as it were, and then tumble over the wall, it could be fatal, couldn't it? And if somebody on top of the roof was to lean too heavily on the cornerstone and it fell off the roof and onto someone, it could prove to be fatal as well. The context has to do with the consequences of rejecting the chief cornerstone, who is Christ. There are consequences for this. So by rejecting the cornerstone, that generation of Jews, especially among the leadership, Jesus says they will be deprived of the kingdom. It's a big deal. But as the parable indicates, the rejection of Messiah also leads to judgment, not just the deprivation of the kingdom. Now, when the religious leaders rejected Christ, uh, It wasn't simply a matter of indifference. It wasn't, you know, passive aggression. It was crucifixion, right? It was hateful. It was violent. It was unjust. In fact, it was illegal. We'll see that toward the the end of the gospel. And because of this, they would actually get what they said the vine dressers deserved for killing the son of the landowner. 
Remember, Jesus asked the religious leaders what the landowner would do to those vine dressers who killed his son, and they said, he will destroy those wicked men miserably. Verse 41, well, guess what? It's exactly what happened. In 70 AD, the Romans crushed the Jewish rebellion. They destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. They killed thousands of Jews. They took thousands into slavery, and they, they, they scattered countless more. They were broken to pieces, as it were, by the stone that they rejected. But as the parable suggests, that's not the end of the story. You know, that has turned out to be judgment in this life. It had nothing to do with the judgment to to come. Christ will come in the final judgment, which regards not the body, but the soul, solidifying the eternal state of all men and women. Those who reject Christ will face him in judgment in the end, and you see, whatever you know, misery the wicked and the unbelieving face in this life is going to be nothing compared to what awaits them on the day of eternal justice when Christ falls upon them. They will, as it were, be crushed to powder. Okay? So you see, the purpose of Jesus' first coming was to stand in judgment for sinful man, to, to pay his penalty and thus rescue him from the, the judgment to come. And this he does every time someone repents and puts their trust in him. But when Jesus comes the second time, he will not be standing in judgment for our sins. Scripture says he will stand as the judge, where he will fall upon the unbelieving and the wicked to destroy them. That's, isn't that the, uh, the push to preach the gospel? That's why we plead with people to repent and trust in the Savior. There's eternal consequences for what you do with Jesus. Now, when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. Well, they perceived correctly, okay? The vine dressers represented the, the, the religious leadership in Israel. We've discussed that. Uh, not just those contemporary, though, but we're talking, Jesus was talking about multiple generations of leadership in Israel that mistreated and murdered the prophets, prophets of God, until finally they rejected and murdered the Son of God. This is made plain by Jesus later. He stops speaking in parables, and uh, he just speaks directly to these, these people, the scribes and the Pharisees. Listen, <clears throat> he says, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. That is a frightening kind of thing. All the guilt of bloodshed coming upon them. That current generation of leaders, they were held accountable for all the righteous blood shed in those previous generations. Why? It's because to that generation was revealed the Son of God, whom the prophets were preparing Israel for, but they rejected him. Jesus will get into this later, but let's talk about it now. They rejected, they, they murdered the one who was revealed to them who came to rescue them. He was revealed to them in advance. Stunning details. They killed the one who came to rescue them. Now, when we look at the Old Testament, the prophets were not vague about the identity of Jesus. They were extremely specific. In fact, when the Magi, you know, came from the East inquiring about the king who was to be born of the Jews, Herod gathered all the scribes together, the Jewish scribes, and he asked them where the Christ was to be born. Do you see the difference? It's interesting. The, the Magi came asking about a king, 
Herod asked about the Christ. You see, Herod understood. He knew that this king that was to be born of the Jews was Messiah. He was Messiah King. Lots of information. And when the scribes answered his question about where the Christ would be born, they said that he would be born where? Yeah, according to the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. Is that specific or is that pretty general? Okay. What makes it more specific is that it was a tiny little village. Yeah. The prophets weren't vague. They were specific. Just as Isaiah 7, 14 said that he would be born of a virgin. Specific or general? Fairly. Yeah. I think it's ultra-specific. How can you be more specific than a prophecy that records in advance a one-time miracle that would occur in a very specific place? Okay? The prophet said that he would also be born of the tribe of Judah, narrowing things down. Daniel 9 informs us that he would come in the first part of the first century. Well, now we have timing. Genesis 49 also gives us an interesting timestamp. It says that the scepter would not depart from Judah until Shiloh came. All ancient Jewish commentators recognized Shiloh as a reference to the Messiah coming from the tribe of Judah who would reign, who would rule over Israel. But the Romans, by decree, took the scepter from Judah in the first part of the first century, which accounts for why the Jews turned Jesus over, excuse me, to the Romans for execution. The Jews no longer had the authority to execute their own people. The Romans took that away from them. Also, when John the Baptist needed confirmation about the identity of Jesus, he sent his disciples to Jesus to ask him, hey, are you the coming one or should we wait for another? And Jesus said, look, just go tell John this. The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the gospel is preached to the poor. What difference does that make? Well, that's exactly what Isaiah said the Messiah would be doing when he came. The prophets were not vague God told Israel that the Messiah was coming. He told them when he would come, how they would identify him, what he would do. But instead, like the prophets of old, they persecuted him and then they finally murdered him. And so God held that particular generation of Jews accountable to what was spoken by the prophets. And as the Pharisees, as Jesus spoke with them here in our story, they knew that he was referring specifically to them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. So they sought to lay hands on him. That's not for prayer, okay? Uh, it's like in Nehemiah, when he saw people selling goods at the, the gate of the city on the Sabbath, he said, if I find you here on the next Sabbath, I'm going to lay hands on you. I'm not going to pray for you. There's all these things in, in the way that Jesus engaged with the Pharisees and the scribes that, that just contributed to their rage. He just humiliated them publicly. Remember, the crowds are just standing around everywhere. This is, this is Passover week. It's, it's the week that the temple is just crammed like cordwood, like sardines in the temple. And, and, and it was their fault. They should have engaged him privately and humbly, right? But they got it publicly. Uh, they felt insulted because they were the subject of Jesus' parables. They probably felt threatened because of Jesus' concluding remarks in verse 44 about the stone breaking and crushing because it was directed at them, and they were theologically offended because Jesus applied Psalm 118 to himself. So, you know, blasphemy and the rest, according to them. They wanted to kill Jesus, and if it wasn't for the crowds, they probably would have dragged him into a dark alley and murdered him, albeit illegally, okay? They're afraid of the people. But Jesus isn't afraid of them because he tells them another parable. <laughs> and Jesus answered and spoke to them again, by parables and said, 
The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding and they were not willing to come. So he spoke a parable to them. Again, it's primarily directed toward the leadership who have smoke coming out of their ears. But the parable was meant to be heard by all because it has implications for everyone. Okay? So we want to definitely hear this. Thus far in the parable, um, the, the, the king represents God the Father, right? And the son represents Christ. The marriage may allude, probably alludes to the wedding feast of the Lamb from Revelation 19.9, but I don't, I don't think we should push that too strongly because there's some details in verse 11 through 13 that may cancel that out, but it's still just a parable, right? Uh, we've said that not every detail in a parable should be drawn out, okay? Uh, because it doesn't contribute to the actual purpose the meaning of the parable. The servants in the parable refer to the prophets of the Old Testament, who for generations, as we've said, were preparing Israel for this this wedding, as it were, calling them to repentance and, and righteousness and faith. But as the greater record of the Old Testament demonstrates, Israel was just not that interested in what the prophets had to say. They were the people that were invited. They were unwilling to come. Do you understand how crazy that is? That their king was inviting them to his son's wedding, and at risk of offending him, <clears throat> they were unwilling to attend. Who does that? I mean, people would do it today to the royals in England because they're, they're more of a conversation piece. But back then, a true monarch invites you to his son's wedding. How does the king respond to their indifference? Again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle are killed and all things are ready come to the wedding. It's not a a typical practice of monarchs to plead with their subjects to join his festivities, especially not for his son. But neither would it be typical for a king's subjects to offend him by rejecting his invitation. This is all crazy, isn't it? It's crazy. But this king not only extends the invitation again to these indifferent people, he entices them with the bounty of his generosity. Please come. Look what I've done for you. I'm inviting you to come and celebrate with me. It it, it just portrays the abundance of God's patience as he, you know, throughout the the centuries, he he extended it to Israel. You know, from the the wilderness wanderings after they left Egypt, to their first 300 years in the land under the judges, and most of their history following King David's reign, he just pleaded with them. He said, let's reason together. He was persuasive. He Just the bounty of his generosity was constantly being offered to Israel. How did Israel respond to God's patience and kindness? But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his servants and treated them spitefully and killed them. That's quite the response. Mistreatment of prophets like Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah, just to mention a few. Okay, now how did God respond? But when the king heard about it, he was furious. And he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their cities. Now, throughout history, God didn't just do this once. He did it multiple times. You know, with the Egyptians, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, and others. God used foreign nations to discipline Israel for the rebellion. And and, and while the, the Babylonian captivity may have cured the Jews of idolatry, it did not produce faith in God or the righteousness that he deserved from them. That he desired. They gave him lip service. Their hearts were far from him. 
After the, the death of Zechariah and Malachi, they, they traded intimacy with God for this mechanical obedience to the law. And instead of producing righteousness and humility, it produced arrogance and pride in the people. It was a mess. Then the king said to his servants, <clears throat> the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were unworthy. Therefore, go into the highways and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. Now, notice that it wasn't just those who were murderous that were counted unworthy. It was also those who were indifferent to the king's invitation, son's wedding. So indifference toward God ends up, it concludes the same way as uh, for those who violently oppose him. Yeah. So instead of forcing the invitation on the unwilling, the king then extends it to the masses. And in order to get the invitation to the masses, he sends his servants to the busiest places in the community. He says, go down to the highways, that's the corners, the intersections, where the masses traveled. And there his servants were to extend the invitation to everyone that they can find. That's, that's the best, but listen to this. So the servants went out into the highways and gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good. And the wedding hall was filled with guests of bad and good. How many of you guys like that? I love it. They, they didn't just gather uh, you know, among the virtuous or the moral, the upright, the ethical, the sober, the clean, the straight, the Republican. <laughs> they, they gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the venue was packed. Now, you know, those who say that, you know, they need to get right, you know, before they come to church or they entertain the things of God, uh, they're missing the point, aren't they? He gathers to himself all who respond to the invitation, and then he does the work of making them right. Isn't that true? Yeah. Paul makes this abundantly clear in 1 Corinthians 6. Please listen to this language carefully. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Was that the bad? He didn't even mention anybody good. <laughs> but passively they were washed. Passively meaning they didn't do the washing. So we don't do the washing. We don't do the sanctifying or the justifying. That's what God to us, God does to us by the ministry of the Holy Spirit as soon as somebody comes to faith in Christ. But you must respond to the invitation. You must trust him to save you by virtue of what Christ has done through his atoning sacrifice. We'll come back to that some more. Back to the text. In this parable, the, the highways, you know, taking it out to the highways probably refers to the gospel being taken beyond the borders of Israel to the greater population of the world, you know, where all of the, the highways led, you know, leaving Israel. That, of course, occurred after Christ was rejected by Israel, crucified. So the gospel then from there just exploded into the Roman world, just exploded. It was extended to everyone. Why? Well, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. They should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 1 Timothy 2.1-4, for the grace of God that brings salvation is appeared to all men, Titus 2.11. 
The Lord is not slack concerning his promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the whole world, 1 John 2, 2. The invitation goes out to all because Jesus died for all. He, he came to recover everyone that was created in the image of God. But as the parable indicates, and as salvation requires, you must respond willingly by faith. You cannot treat it indifferently, and you certainly don't want to be aggressive. The invitation of God is not sufficient in itself. You must respond in faith. If, if you don't respond in faith, trusting in the sacrifice of Christ for your sins, there is, there's just no fooling God. Okay? No matter how moral you may be, and you're probably not that moral, okay? no matter how spiritual you come across, ethical you appear, no matter how good uh, you may actually be, I've known a lot of people. I haven't known very many good people. <laughs> you have failed miserably in the eyes of the one who is infinitely holy, in whom John says there is no moral darkness at all. He suffers no ethical blemish, but is pure in every way. And his moral demands upon humanity can be ignored. It just can't be avoided by anyone. Okay? Nobody can evade his his all-seeing eye. I think we all know deep down that nothing is hidden from God. He knows all. He sees all. Even the most secret things of your life, even, uh, even things you may not even see, like your most basic motive. As, as light exposes everything concealed by the dark, his holiness brings every defect to the surface. He sees plainly what no one else could have even suspected. He needs no witnesses because he can testify to everything. He needs no evidence because it's all in his possession. He's the ultimate judge. Nothing in the end will escape his judgment. The, the book of Ecclesiastes ends like this. It's a great way to end this book. He says, God will bring every, what's every mean? Work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. We, we see this even in the parable. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. <clears throat> so he said to him, friend, uh, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We love passages like this, don't we? <laughs> the individual got into the banquet unnoticed by everyone. But who? The king. He went in and immediately noticed the man was not dressed appropriately for the occasion. <clears throat> and his silence, the man's silence indicates that he knew that he didn't belong. He was there, he was invited, but he, not, he did not belong because of something about him. <clears throat> now Jesus doesn't tell us in the parable what the, the wedding garments represent, but this is a kingdom parable. And we all know what it takes to get into the kingdom because it's been preached about just a little bit in the Gospels. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then throughout all the preaching of Jesus, there is this strong emphasis on trusting in him. It's repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. They go hand in hand. They're two sides of the same coin. As Jesus says, without them, nobody can be saved. So this man was apparently invited, but 
he never repented. He never trusted in Christ. And so with all who refuse to do so, they are bound and cast away into outer darkness where they will remain until the final judgment. Where they will remain, that's not even the final judgment. Okay? So everyone is invited, whether bad or good, but it is required of all that they repent, they trust in Christ, whom God gave as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And so Jesus concludes, he says, so for many, for many are called, but few are chosen. What a fun statement that is. The call, according to the parable, if we're to remain contextual, refers to the invitation to the wedding. Okay? The chosen refer to those guests who had wedding garments on. Okay? Many called, few chosen. Now, the implication of this statement can really upset people. Okay? When Jesus says that many are called, uh, that many are invited to the wedding, it implies that some are not, possibly. And then added to this, he says, but few are chosen. It implies that even among those who are called or invited, some are not chosen. Those who are chosen are literally the elect, uh, is the Greek word. In other words, among the called, few are elected, few are chosen by God. People have some some aversion to what is called the doctrine of election, uh, those who are chosen by God, because it implies there are those that are not chosen. Of course, those who most strongly advance this doctrine are Calvinists. Um, someone once, just to demonstrate the aversion that some people have, someone once avoided coming to Calvary Chapel because they confused Calvary Chapel for Calvin Chapel. But Calvary is a hill in Jerusalem, and Calvinism is a theological idea. Uh, others have been leery of attending here because they heard that I believed in the doctrine of predestination and election. Well, I've read my Bible, so I do believe in those, okay? Uh, Romans chapter 8 and, and Ephesians chapter 1 and uh, election and predestination, they're, they're everywhere in the scriptures, uh, not just the New Testament, but the Old. God says, Israel, mine elect. There's the elect angels. Uh, election is just there, okay? But all this could be troubling for some people. Um, in fact, they're even troubling to me when some people interpret in certain ways. So, Let's take a look at this, okay? I had mentioned uh, earlier in chapter 20, verse 16, that when Jesus used the word many in the way that he does here, he means all. Now I have to prove that, don't I? All are called. God invites everyone to the wedding because Jesus died for everyone and not just a few. This same use of the word many is used by Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12 through 21, to mean all, okay? Now, this is, does not mean that every time the word many is used in Scripture, that it always means all. Okay? So context determines that. But when it has to do with the offer of the gospel, when it has to do with the atonement of Christ and God reconciling things to himself, it means all. It means all. Okay? Now, if you have a, a particular theology or a philosophical commitment called limited atonement, Many, meaning all, may trouble you. So now I really have to defend my position, okay? But I believe that if your commitment is purely textual and biblical, it's not going to bother you, okay? You can continue to read the scriptures and receive them at face value. Like when John says that God so loved the world, you believe that he loves everyone in the world. When Paul says that God desires all men to be saved, you, mean, you know that he means every person, when Peter says that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 
He means every single person in the world. And when John says that Jesus is the propitiation for the sins of the whole world, you know that he means everyone in the world. That's the sense of the passage. Jesus died for everyone. His atonement was extended universally to every single person. Okay, that statement people really love. So let me talk about it with you. Uh, Let's look at Romans 5 real quick. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. So I want to start here just to establish Paul's use and meaning of words, okay, along with his theology about human depravity. He says death spread to how many men and women, by the way, okay, all because all sinned. So because of Adam, everyone dies. Have you noticed? Okay. Everyone sins. It's nothing new to any of you. But Paul continues. He says, For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. It's like, you know, if there's no speed limit sign. <laughs> I love it when there's no speed limit. <clears throat> Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come, speaking of Christ. So Adam, the first man, is a type of Christ. Two men in history, uh, each one acting as head or representative for humanity. So in other words, Adam, the first man, he sadly represented all of us in the garden. When he acted, his actions were our actions. And the guilt of his actions were imputed to us. The consequences of his actions were imputed to us. What he was guilty of, we are guilty of by imputation. But Jesus, the last man, he represented us at Calvary. Some people say Adam represented us at the first tree. Jesus represented us at the second tree, the cross of Calvary. So that what he did, we did. He died, we all died with him. But the free gift is not like the offense, speaking of Adam's offense. For if by the one man's offense, many died... Much more, the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to. So here it is. By the one man's offense, many died. Pardon? Because of Adam's offense, how many died? It's not just many. It's not just a lot. I mean, out of 10 people, how many will die? Alarming statistic. Okay. (laughs) So what does Paul mean by the word many? All. Okay. In fact, in verse 12, he used the word all in reference to those who die because of Adam. So many means all. So then, what does the word many mean at the end of the verse where Paul says, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. You're not as confident now. (laughs) It would be very confusing if Paul meant all in the first instance, but not all in the second, okay? The gift of God is extended to All. Let's continue on. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, for the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation, but the free gift which came from many offenses resulted in justification. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as through one man's offense judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Paul has switched back now to the word all. 
Because of Adam's offense, judgment and condemnation came to all men. And because of Jesus' righteous act, his free gift came to all men. That's easy enough, but Paul goes on. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. That has not been my experience, unless he means all. So also by one man's obedience, uh uh-oh, many will be made righteous. (laughs) Not to confuse, but in the context, the word many is just a way of saying all. And what is clear from this section of scripture is that the free gift of salvation, justification, righteousness, was extended to all, verse 15, 18, and 19. But it was not appropriated, it was not received, it was not applied to all for salvation and justification. But it was most certainly extended to every single person, just as by Adam's sin, all die. Okay? Let me say this another way. Just because all are called, just because the gospel is for everyone, and just because Jesus died for every sinner that has ever lived does not mean that all sinners are saved and justified by virtue of Jesus' death and resurrection. That's a doctrine called universalism. Okay? The death, the atonement of Christ, extends to everyone. The eternal God has the potential to save everyone, but his atonement only applies to those who willingly receive it through faith and repentance. Okay? That is the statement inserted into Paul's argument in verse 17. It's not inserted by me. For if by the one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who what? To whom it is applied. It's extended to all, but it's only applied to those who repent and believe. That's the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Okay? The benefit of the gospel, actually the, the benefits of the gospel, the atonement of Christ is not applied to us is not experienced by us until we receive it, as the text says here. John says the same thing. He says, he, Jesus, he came to his own, speaking of that generation of Jews, and his own did not receive him, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. We receive him through faith and repentance. So Jesus died for every single person in the world. That's the extent of the atonement. But the redemptive benefits are only applied. You understand? Applied by those who receive the invitation through repentance and faith. So back to Jesus' conclusion of his parable. For many are called, but few are chosen. When the word many is used in this way, it's just a way of saying all, okay? All are called. In the parable, the chosen are those who willingly responded to the invitation and attended the wedding feast. And those who responded properly, were wearing what? Wedding garments, okay? Because you don't want to be called out by the king, okay? Those are the chosen. Now, the problem that some people have with the doctrine of election, with God choosing us, is that it seems to completely be one-sided, that God chose them apart from them receiving him, as if God chose them and they didn't choose him. Well, just because God chose us doesn't mean that we didn't choose him. His choosing us doesn't cancel out, okay? our choosing of him. Now, he certainly chose us before we chose him. The scriptures make that abundantly clear. He chose us before he created the world. But that doesn't preclude our choosing him. I mean, I chose Shandy way before she chose me, okay? I was on a mission, okay? I chose way in advance. (laughs) And eventually, 
I, amazingly, miraculously, <laughs> she chose me. Okay. <laughs> he chose us before time, and we chose him in time. There's no contradiction there. There's no conflict in the laws of logic or theology, no problem textually. Paul says, as you have received Christ, Jesus, the Lord, so walk in him. Receiving always implies choosing. If he coerced us, that is, forced us to receive him contrary to our will, that would actually create a contradiction in his nature. God is by nature love, and love does not force itself on its beloved. Forced love is not love, it's rape, okay? Uh, No one comes to him who does not freely receive him. Few are chosen because there's so few sinners who are willing to repent and trust in him, right? We're rebels, It takes persuading, amen? And he is very persuasive. That's why Paul preached persuasively, okay? Most people are like those who were initially invited to the wedding. They were invited, but they were unwilling. Some of them violently unwilling. Notice that none of the unwilling attended the wedding. Only the willing did. It's in the parable. This will be true in the kingdom. Only the willing will be there. All are called, but few are chosen because most choose to rebel. You know, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many, does it mean all there? Please say no. Many everywhere in the scriptures does not always mean all. Okay, the context has to determine. If this means all, we're all doomed. Okay, there's nothing in the context that would suggest that many here means all. But this wide gate that leads to destruction, we could say the majority will go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life. And there are few who find it. Every, notice, every person is instructed to enter the narrow gate, but everyone is individually responsible to enter the narrow gate. It's their choice. Now, we could examine countless passages that demonstrating that Jesus died, that you know, he atoned for the sins of every single person, and that everyone created in the image of God is invited to the wedding. And we could do this demonstrating that while Jesus is the propitiation not just for our sins, as John says, but for the sins of the whole world, only those who repent and receive them by faith are actually saved. We could also look at many passages that prove that God chose us for salvation and we willingly received his salvation, that our individual will cooperated with his divine will. So don't let words like many in the the context of the gospel invitation or the doctrine of election bother you. Certainly don't let it intimidate you. And I would even say, don't let it divide you from other believers, okay? It's okay to disagree on some things. Not on all things, but many things. I agree. But this whole doctrine, you know, with the, the parable of the vine dressers, the, the parable of the, the wedding feast, all of this, the, the implications of the atonement and faith and repentance, if this all truly concerns you, then just go preach the gospel to the bad and the good, And out from those who are invited will emerge those that God has chosen because they will freely be gathered to the king's banquet through repentance and faith. I love when Paul was in Corinth. Paul was getting concerned about being there. And the Lord said, Paul, don't be afraid for I have many people in this city. But if you want them to emerge, you got to go preach. Okay? I believe the same thing about Centralia. God has many people in Centralia. They're currently dead in sins and trespasses. And the only way for them to come to life and emerge is through the preaching of the gospel by the people of God. Okay? If you're disturbed about you know, eternal judgment and all that, well, good. Then go preach. 
okay? Because the gospel is the only power of God unto salvation. Go ahead and stand up and we'll pray. Look at that, 10 o'clock exactly. All you haters out there, that's right. You want, yeah, let's, we can do another song. Let's pray. Father, we love you and uh, we thank you for 10 o'clock. We pray for all these people that don't have their sword, their Bibles. Um, but Lord, as much as there is theological disagreement within the church, help us to, to treat this as a family affair, uh, to come together in, in unity where we can. And, uh, but at the end of the day, Lord, your word is supreme and your glory is necessary. And, and without our being unified around your word, uh, it's a mess. But Lord, again, Lord, I just pray that whatever concern we have about the doctrine of judgment, that it would, it would motivate us to be preachers of the gospel, uh, that we would fall in step with Jesus and the apostles and just preach. It's the simple presentation of the gospel uh, that saves. And uh, so help us to be faithful to that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right.